Remember, Scared for Your Life is opening uh, for submissions April 1st. You can check us out at filmfreeway.com slash scared for your L-I-I-F-E because we are a part of the Long Island International Film Expo. Tell your friends, submit your films, go out and make a film. Uh, we're open for submissions starting April 1st at filmfreeway.com slash scared for your L-I-I-F-E. Thursday. Today is Thursday. Welcome back to the Hauntsville Cryptcast. I'm Anthony. I'm Doza. I'm Anna. And I'm John. Today we're putting the fan back in Phantom as we talk about some of the most fantastical phasms of Filmland. So keep your hand at the level of your eye and come along for the ride. This is the Phantom of the Podcast. I'm super psyched we're doing a Phantom-related episode because there are so many films and, like, gothic mood pieces that stem from Phantom and, like, the elaborate secret passageways and that whole question of, is the Phantom a guy or an actual Phantom? A guy. Yeah, thank God. But this is my first read-through of the book, and so I did a deep dive on Gaston LaRue and how the book came to be. First of all, I didn't know that it was published as a Penny Dreadful, which is awesome. I can't imagine, like, having this, is it a guy or is it a phantom question in the back of my mind and not having an answer until the next Penny Dreadful is published. Phenomenal idea. But there's a lot of weird stuff that surrounded Phantom coming to, into being as well. So obviously it's based at the Paris Opera. Awesome setting, actual place, historic venue. Gaston Leroux was working as a journalist uh, at the time that he was writing it. And so he writes Phantom of the Opera from an archivalist point of view, like taking all these incidents that took place at the Paris Opera and just retelling them to us, the readers. But when he was working as a journalist, he was going through files that uh, accounted back to the fire at the Paris Opera in the 1700s, which was started essentially through negligence. Uh, Somebody uh, was uh, tending the opera house at night, a small fire broke out, and they didn't want to bother the fire department, so they just let the fire keep on burning. (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's safe. Could you imagine being like, you know, they've probably had a really tough day. I don't I don't want to give them a call. <laughs> I, I can handle this fire by myself in this elaborate wooden and like probably gas lamped establishment. <laughs> Nothing uh, could possibly go wrong. <laughs> but the biggest one is obviously the one that's translated uh, so iconically from the book to the musical which is the dropping of the chandelier, which did happen, uh, not as dramatically as the musical or the book. Uh, In fact, it wasn't even the chandelier itself that fell. It was two pieces of the chandelier as the counterweights that held it up. Did anyone die? Oh, yeah. Um, There were some casualties. People were injured. Uh, One person did die, which is actually accurate to the book. It only kills one person. Yeah, well, it's still... Like, it sucks. Yeah, I say only, but, like, the yes. the stage production <laughs> would have you imagine that everybody in the theater watching The Phantom of the Opera just died. It kind of goes to show that the concept of cursed films or cursed venues has been around since then, where you take this event that, like, obviously it was still tragic that that happened, but as legend has it, as and as the tale of The Phantom grew and grew and grew, 
it now became no it was the whole entire chandelier i swear to god and after that there was like a stork in the back that's really you know a little person that got hung on set (laughs) (laughs) about 666 a chandelier in pieces two to be exact exactly (laughs) (laughs) there's tons of that stuff and like uh another one even from phantom of the opera is that allegedly uh, in one of the productions, they needed a skeleton prop, and they used the actual skeleton of a former ballet dancer who had danced in that very uh, theater. And it's just like, all right, I, I get like you're trying to do like a performative thing. You're it's it's fun to talk about, but relax. Like shit goes wrong. Not everything needs to be <laughs> like have a story. But it makes it, it fun. Yeah, but that's that's where the fun really comes from. It's this urban legend, essentially, dating back to the 1800s. And it just kind of shows that we've been telling these stories of like people living in the walls and ghosts haunting opera houses for over 200 years. And like the thing that I really like about Phantom is going off that skeleton motif, like in the book, yeah, you can see where that inspiration comes into play because the Phantom is described not as like monstrous as some of the makeup effects that we get, but he's mostly skeletal. He's described as wearing a death's head throughout the whole show. And sometimes that's an actual prop mask. And a lot of times it's just his actual face. Like for, for most of it, like uh, in the book, he's wearing a skull mask uh, over his like even more gruesome face underneath. Like he truly is, uh, he, he's like ghoul like, or they describe him as having rotting flesh. So fun fact, I did try and figure out what that was because obviously I want to know how much of the book is like based off of certain things and where we can tie the truth into. Um, do you guys want to take a guess at what the Phantom has that makes him look that way? Really strong cheekbones. <laughs> <laughs> how do you explain the no-nos? Uh, uh, special effects. <laughs> Cocaine. Leprosy. <laughs> Okay, so leprosy is a pretty solid guess. Uh, It was one of the things that I came across. But uh, what I had found was a timeline of how leprosy progresses. And if uh, based on the book's interpretation of the Phantom and he actually has no nose to the extent of wearing a clear fake nose when he shows up in front of people, the rest of his uh, muscle structure would have deteriorated to a point that he couldn't possibly pull off the rest of the maneuvers that Uh, he pulls off throughout the story. So it can't be leprosy. But a lot of Phantom's trauma comes from his his birth, his youth, with his parents being disgusted and disgraced with him, specifically his mother. We never hear much about the Phantom's father, but we know that she abandoned him at an early age. From what I understand, the most likely scenario of what the Phantom has is probably that he was born with syphilis. Oh. Oh. Oh, shit. So not only is that a mark on his image, but it's also a mark to his mother, which would explain the societal, you know, I can't be seen in public with you. Not only are you hideous, but like now other people know that I have syphilis, which also deteriorates the mind, which explains Phantom's progression into becoming crazier and crazier. That's awesome and fits the time period like super well. Yeah. So that really pinpoints together uh, specifically how much Lon Chaney chose to be inspired by the actual text when putting together his image of what the Phantom looks like. And Obviously, Lon Chaney is the 1925 Phantom of the Opera, probably the most iconic Phantom of the Opera beyond the Broadway one. In 1925, Gaston LaRue came to Universal with 
his own like he just personally handed them a copy of the book and said i would love for you to turn this into a movie he gave them their blessing and this is the most involved in a phantom production that he has personally been yeah he i think he gave a copy to carl uh lemley who was the founder of universal um and apparently he read it in one night and was just like i need to make a movie out of this what can i do to make this happen and i think larue died about a year after the film came out so he got to see it at least such a shame <laughs> yeah but it didn't go over well they had to recut it three times and like john you had mentioned cursed uh venues but this is a cursed production uh the literally yeah the 25 and the 43 at universal had so much trouble getting off the ground that uh lon cheney had to direct himself well yeah by the by the end of production he well halfway through production he stopped talking to the director um because they just kept arguing about everything and so they would speak through the cinematographer just to like do everything and lon cheney just gave up and directed himself for most of it <laughs> But I'm going to go on Lon Chaney's side because it's Lon Chaney and he's a Oh, genius. absolutely. I, <laughs> oh, yeah. This I don't even know what the argument was, but I'm on his side. Does it matter, right? It's listed exactly. here as directed by Robert Julian and then uncredited. Uh, there are three directors underneath that. And so, like, that's never a good sign uh, of your no. directing ability. No, not at all. And I just Hang I, on. I I don't know how to take that because Wizard of Oz was allegedly directed by like eight people. Just found that's that. That's why out. it's a fucking it's fucking all over the place. But it's also like a ton of material to adapt, so I, I get it. Yes. But also this was such like an epic undertaking and Lon Chaney obviously had a respect for the source material. And like you said, his accuracy and his look being so close to the original description of the phantom in larue's book speaks volumes especially with the type of makeups that lon cheney was known for uh, you know he has his his storied makeup kit that uh, you know there are pictures with him in the phantom makeup holding the uh the makeup kit up and it's just fascinating that he would sit there and create that that monster and just form it on his face i mean down to getting the the look of the missing nose it's phenomenal you know and to add to that too the death head mask i think this is the only time that we see the phantom have some sort of death or skull mask on within the film adaptations a lot of other times it it becomes more that masquerade mask and then when we get all the way to like Andrew Lloyd Webber, it's just like a tiny little piece and the Phantom's actually super, super handsome. So I will give the <laughs> Lloyd Webber production and the um, 2004 film Credit Where Credit Is Due best Don Juan triumphant costume. Um, <laughs> that's where we get to see the Death's Head mask. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes, yes, yeah. yes. But Lon Chaney was the only one who really seemed to give a fuck makeup-wise in my opinion because I mean everything in the book as you said like it says he has no nose and he's almost like skeletal in like structure and the lengths that Lon Chaney would go to not even just for this film but for every film he was in makeup wise is insane his makeup kit is actually on display in a museum in London and so is the he had a bust made of his head and a cast made of his head sorry 
and he would carry that around and he would practice his makeup on that so that he wasn't just relying on a mirror and he could see what it looked like before he put it on his face. And it was really realistic sculpt, well, bust of his face and he had like glass eyes inserted in so that he could see like what his eyes would actually look like for real. Um, Which but the is lengths crazy because to... it's black and white, but like going far enough to make yeah. sure that it reads a different color than just a white iris. Great. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, I mean the the yeah the lengths I could literally go on about Lon Chaney's makeup for every film he's done, but I will <laughs> I will will tone it back down to uh to just Phantom, <laughs> but like even for Phantom he. Like, he used mortician's wax a lot. So, like, what they use to reconstruct faces after something as horrible happens to them. Um, he used that a lot on his face. So he, like, reshaped his cheekbones and everything like that, as usual. He used wire a lot. Um, so he put wire to reshape his jaw in a lot of his films. He also put wire on the inside of his nose for Phantom to make his nostrils bigger, as well as putting black crease paint in there to just accentuate how there was no nostrils anymore um he used like this medical material called fish skin to pin his nose the top of his nose to his forehead to make it like upturned um he used a bald cap with padding in it to make his head look longer and then hand glued hair on top of it to make it look like it was normal he made a pair of teeth for every performance he did out of putty um yeah he he did a lot the teeth are another point of syphilis that um, really tips the scales in the favor of that being what the fandom was born with. Um, I forget what it's called, but there is a specific uh, type of uh, dental deformity that happens to children born with syphilis. I think it's called like Hansen's teeth or something. Not to be confused <laughs> with Mbop. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> But as much as Lon Chaney's makeup is the most iconic and most accurate to the portrayal of the Phantom, uh, I got to give credit where credit is due because the 1937 Song at Midnight, it's a Chinese production based off of Phantom of the Opera. The monster makeup looks awesome. He truly is a great, like, it's not necessarily the Phantom, but it is the Phantom story, but like, he looks great. And the way that they did that is they um, sort of just like took a uh, a piece of prosthetic and then just like drew oblong shapes on it and then crafted the face sort of around that. And he almost looks like he is like a melting man, <laughs> which hmm. uh, for 37, an awesome melt makeup. But it is uh, essentially the, the Phantom of the Opera story. Uh, taken from a Chinese perspective. And uh, it goes on the record as the first Chinese horror film and the first ever horror musical. That's so awesome. And like, realistically, if we think about it, Phantom is probably, and I know we didn't get into this in our uh, Final Girls episode or anything, and we totally overlooked Phantom, but technically the first like masked slasher. Holy shit. You're fucking yeah. oh, oh my god. We got to go back. It's the first time we get an unmasking of a monster in horror and that has become such an iconic piece of horror and specifically the slasher genre. And I definitely want to get into this a little bit later in the episode, but Don't say Scooby Doo. Scooby Doo. <laughs> so much of this is Scooby Doo. I to- I totally get it. <laughs> I mean, everything it- comes back to Scooby Doo at the end of the day. 
<laughs> you did start to get a lot of deviations from the original story where the later Phantom movies, it was some sort of accident with acid that would scar Eric's face as opposed to it being something that he was born with and some sort of trauma that he's had from childhood. Or you get the Robert England one where he makes a deal with the devil and his skin falls off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that one's just straight horror, though. That one's it's a good time, but it's so... It definitely takes away from it being Phantom. And I think the most interesting out of all of the ways that he gets disfigured uh, is the Phantom one where he gets disfigured during a printing press accident while he's trying to print the music for his opera. Oh, Phantom of the Paradise? No, that's for the uh, 1962 Hamill Phantom of the, they... Phantom, Phantom of the Opera. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a completely different story, the Hamill one. Like 100 Wild. It's definitely the most sympathetic of the Phantoms as well, the Hamill one. Because he's not a dick. He's actually kind of a hero. <laughs> In fact, he's super apologetic by the end of the movie. He's literally begging... He literally uh, saves Christine's Christine life. and the detective, I believe, right? Yeah, he saves Christine yeah. at the end. That's one of the rare cases. It sounds like they actually took into account the Persian as a character, who is easily one of the most interesting parts of Phantom. The Hammer one is completely different to the point where, like, I don't know, he, Raul is not a character. We have Raul Harry, the stage, character is, the, book. <laughs> Harry the stage manager is... Harry the stage manager is the love interest in this one and he's also not a dick and he sympathizes with the phantom once he finds out that the owner of the opera house has basically stolen the phantom's music and that's why everything horrible has happened to the phantom and so harry's like hell yeah you should get your mute your music back and we should take this guy down so he kind of just like yeah i'm on your side dude um <laughs> which creates a really cool dynamic it's also set in a theater in london instead of paris because it's hammer um, it was actually filmed at uh, the new Wimbledon Theatre, which uh, I used to work at. Ooh, it's weird. one of those beautiful theatres. Yeah, it's such a pretty theatre. Um, I only worked in like the box office, so I didn't really. I didn't have any phantom it, trouble. But it's super pretty. No, <laughs> unfortunately not. Um, One time the printer stopped working, and everyone freaked out. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, like, instead of the chandelier dropping on the audience in that one, it's at the end, like, Christine is performing, finally, and because she originally gets fired because the opera manager basically tries to make a pass on her, and she says no, so he goes, well, you're out of the play then. And the Phantom's like, uh, hell no. And so they, they get her back into the production, and then when she performs, then the chandelier gets dropped on her, and the Phantom dives in and saves her and that's how he dies so it's it's much more sympathetic character who's actually not trying to do anything apart from get christine to sing his music i don't know how i feel about these phantom as a sympathetic character iterations like it definitely works for phantom of the paradise it sounds like it works for this by introducing an external villain beyond the phantom being the catch-all villain but like I don't know. You got the Dario Argento one, which, weird note, uh, Dario Argento claims that uh, opera was a original concept created by, written by, directed by him. It's just Phantom of the Opera, but he's raised by rats instead. And everyone is sexually assaulted. Well, yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. So, it's like, just Willard. 
I did try and keep coming back to Willard while going through this, and I couldn't make the connection. Rats are only Don't briefly mentioned. I won't force it. But Texas Chainsaw Massacre is absolutely a Phantom of the Opera film. Go on, Anthony. You we'll say. get there. We'll get there. <laughs> Will we? <laughs> it's it's interesting because again the. 1943 Phantom was originally set out to make the Phantom a, a much more sympathetic character with yeah, the possibility of him being Christine's father. Exactly. Which, that's that's one thing that I do love is that these movies always have to deal with the, you know, a creative, a, a composer, a musician. Give me one sector of creatives that is more obsessive than musicians and composers. They are literally control freaks. That's why composers become composers. Because they say, no, I don't want you to go ahead and take, uh, you know, a creative liberty in how you play this. You play it exactly as I wrote it. And it translates so well into it that, like, of course someone whose hands stop working is going to go completely bananas. You know, someone who's been classically trained, who's worked on it for so many years, and who is, that's their form of expression, is just going to go completely nuts. And like, thankfully, they did away with the storyline where he was actually Christine's father. But he does. They have a still hint at it. Where, uh, I think he just pays for her uh, music lessons, right? Yeah. So this is where I don't jive with Phantom being sympathetic because uh, his whole interaction with Christine is him fully manipulating her to the extent that while they don't explain how he gets his hands on her father's violin his sheet music he's overheard the stories that she tells of the things that she finds fond memories with of her father and he fully incorporates that into his personality to manipulate her into obeying him in the book we have this nice balance where Christine's father is long dead by the time we get to the events of the books. Uh, He's the last positive male influence in her life. And then she's caught up in the middle of Phantom and Raoul, who, as much as the Broadway musical wants to make Raoul a sympathetic character and, like, the young heartthrob lover, Raoul sucks. He's a a piece of shit through the whole thing. Oh, yeah, he's a piece of shit. To the point where, like, Christine is conflicted, where... She's like, I don't even know if I want to be with you, bro. Yeah. She, she, like, every time she laughs at him, I'm like, yes, Christine, yes. And I wish that translated (laughs) into film because then maybe Christine would be an early era or first final girl. But we never get that. She becomes the damsel in distress. Whereas, yeah, I mean, she does end up with Raul in the end and like they do express their love for each other in the book. But it's so much of it is her being defiant. Oh, she absolutely settles for him. Oh, yeah. Except for in the, at the end of the 1943 one, she actually just chooses no one and says that she wants to focus on her career. And that's... That's, that's the like, fucking move. That's the only redeeming thing for me personally for the 1943 one because it's my least favorite. But yeah, she's just like, huh, no, I don't want any of you. I'm going to focus on my singing. Yeah, they, yeah, they you- fixed like the Christine arc. But then, but then they ruined it again with everything that came afterwards. But still, they had it right for a second. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that movie was, like, so influenced by the musicals and, like, romantic comedies that came before. And they just wanted to have, like, that feel-good moment of, of Christine choosing her career because it was so many women now after the war going out into the workforce. So it's like, okay, let's go ahead and reflect that in the film. Unfortunately, they couldn't do it with the rest of the movie <laughs> quite as well. 
as far as like movies that came after, as brief as it is, I think it's about 45 minutes. The animated, I believe it was 1989 cartoon, 1987 cartoon, gets so much of it right. Emphasis on the Persian, emphasis on Christine living for herself and battling Raul and the Phantom, emphasis on the Phantom's past and the traps that uh, he builds. And that's his... the most interesting part of of Phantom to to me. Yeah, I mean the two most interesting parts are easily the element of toxicity between Raul and Phantom, and Phantom's history as an illusionist. His background when he was living in Persia is so fucking bonkers to the point that like when you find that out, you're like this guy who is a brilliant composer who has a beautiful voice is also an a Persian assassin. <laughs> yeah. Like, but like that, that is the coolest part of this for me, where the the contrast between Phantom being a ghost and the Phantom being like a physical person as because he's never where he's supposed to be and he like seems to like disappear without a trace but it's because he built all these trap doors and contraptions that allow him to move freely through the walls and the labyrinth of the theater and that is absolutely bonkers and so fucking terrifying yeah <laughs> i i just bought the trap door maker it's a graphic novel that aims to fill in the gaps of the persian story leading from uh phantom's escape from persia to paris it's it's more of an action thing if this were made into a movie it would be like the phantom of the opera version of the mummy it's that action driven i'd watch that yeah like and a lot of this is given like as a as a footnote in the book where it's like oh by the way he was killing people for the shah in in persia and he was doing magic tricks and making people quote unquote disappear both physically like metaphorically and literally <laughs> and that's where we get that awesome crossover to how phantom influences scooby-doo scooby-doo everything is about it's a guy in a mask uh there's these elaborate locations that they take place at and every every person behind the mask has some like niche intimate knowledge that helps their quote-unquote phantom performance become that much more of an is it a ghost or is it a guy God damn, I, I both hate and love that you once again bring this back to Scooby-Doo, but that, that's so amazing because like the, the whole plot that Scooby-Doo hinges on is that there's a haunting or a monster going on and they have to go there to figure out like what the fuck is actually up and anything that is conceived as a haunting by the people that live or work there or whatever just happens to be a gimmick that was created by the person who is wearing a mask and lurking around going through the trap doors and traveling through the walls and like scooby-doo is like the the staple is like the painting with the eyes cut out and then like there's the scene where it zooms in on that and the eyes look back and forth of like oh my god that's so fucking scary there's somebody in that wall right there behind that painting well i have goosebumps <laughs> <laughs> it makes your skin crawl it makes your skin yeah. crawl, and it's that invasion it's, it's super of yucky. It's the invasion of your personal space. It's the invasion of like I thought that this was my private stead, you know, like my my place to just be comfortable. And instead, homeboy's living in the walls, looking through, peeping his eyes through. L like Anthony brought up before, taking aspects of my life, you know, very deeply personal stories and morphing himself into someone that can become more sympathetic when really it's just manipulation. It's just toxic. 
the thing that separates films like Phantom from home invasion films is that it's more than an invasion of the home. It's an invasion of your life. These aren't like somebody who's stopping in for the day and is going to hold you and your family hostage. No. Films like Phantom and films like uh, The Boy and uh, I See You and Seance, these are films where... Uh, somebody has made their home inside your home. They're living among you. They're living under your nose. They are eating your food. They are living off of you in almost a parasitic kind of way. It's you, you think it's a haunting because it's minor things that go missing. It's minor things that move. It's minor adjustments until finally you cross that boundary and awaken this monster that's living among you. And that's when these people usually end up having to fight back. And that's when uh, it takes on a little bit more of the home invasion trope where uh, you're now fighting for survival in your own home against an enemy that knows your home better than you. I think that's what makes it so much scarier than home invasion, because in home invasion, you kind of see them come into your personal space, which is, is horrible, and they take over. But in this way, you're like, how long have they been there? How much do they know? What have they been seeing? What do they know about me? They could very well know your strengths and weaknesses physically and use that against you. They can know where all the weapons in the house are hidden. They can know how to lock all the doors properly. Like, yeah, the it's it's freaking terrifying. Dude, you got me, like, looking around behind me now. <laughs> I've been doing that, I've, like... <sighs> Ever since I found out what frogging was, I've literally just been freaking out completely. Holy shit. When I told my wife that we were doing this episode, she brought up a video from YouTube that came out a few years back where this guy was wondering what was going on with his cereal. I think it was like his cereal and things in his cupboard that just mysteriously he'd buy them at the beginning of the week. Halfway through the week, they were pretty much run through. And he's like, there's no way I'm eating this cereal that quickly. And he had a you know, like a home security system set up. I remember and this one video. night he was just going through and this woman was just coming out from the attic. She was living in the walls, coming through the kitchen, like stepping on the table ever so carefully, going into the the pantry, taking out whatever she wanted, putting it back, and then like scurrying back into the walls. And it's that's exactly what it is. It's like this happens in real life and it's it's terrifying. And as you were saying that, actually I realized that Encanto is a phantom movie. Holy shit. Yeah, Bruno is a phantom. (laughs) We don't talk about Bruno. That's why we don't talk about Bruno. (laughs) Shit, now I want to do a mashup of We Don't Talk About Bruno and the Phantom theme from the the musical. I'll be waiting for it. it. Please do it. I found out while we were doing this episode, while I was doing this research and going down the frogging rabbit hole, like there are stories all over the internet of it. And that's where these urban legends, like when a stranger calls have been permeating the social site guys for years. People tell these stories. People have been telling these stories for 200 years. People are worried about other people living in their homes, in their walls, in places that they don't often spend time in or recognize or do their due diligence to check. And I found out that Grady Hendrix, the author of uh, My Best Friend's Exorcism, went through this at nine years old. Grady Hendrix apparently found evidence of somebody living in the family's vents. 
and at nine years old would tell tell the parents like you know there's somebody in my room there's somebody in the vents and they would just brush it off like you're a nine-year-old you're crazy this is nothing until finally i forget what happened they made some kind of mistake and grady had like pure evidence and the police had to come and actually take somebody out of their vents and arrest them it's always the piss bottle it was a bottle of piss was it no so no so what what happened was the evidence that he had that someone was living in the vents is that he looked up and there was someone staring at him and basically they the the worst part about this is that he was only nine years old and this person had set them up themselves up deliberately so that they were overlooking the grate above his bed so he would see eyes through the grate and his parents didn't believe him and the way that they eventually found it is maggots suddenly started falling through the grate one day Uh and so his parents obviously were like okay something's dead up there and found this man had had died oh i thought they arrested him that's so much worse yeah (laughs) exactly so a a lot of these are like when i was like i was watching movies about just like people that live in the walls but a lot of these are the only way that they found out is because like they find like oh it smells up here and then what's that oh my god it's bones <laughs> i don't like this i have rooms in my house i have never been in so like i am the biggest contender for this to happen and it's it's freaking me out so much go go into them <laughs> i didn't even learn about frogging until we saw i see you and then i was like what the hell is this is this a real thing and anthony was like yes here's a big rabbit hole and i was like no my life is ruined <laughs> yeah that's the first time i, I heard the instance of the word I was like, I was trying to do some digging and I was searching frogging and some people were like, frogging is when a frog sits like a man and you go frogging. <laughs> um, but the the one that I see that brought up most often is something that happened in the 1940s. It was the Spider-Man of Moncrief Place. It was just somebody living in the walls and like a parasite living off of the people, not the people, like, but uh, living off of the resources that the people brought into their home. And then just one day was like you know what it's game time and then you fucking murdered them and oh, that that escalation and that ramp up is uh what you see in mo- in most of these films where they take like a dramatic shift in tone from paranormal horror and into just like into real life well i mean even just bringing up the incorporating the paranormal into real life and this whole question of is it a guy is it a ghost i mean i know that we had briefly talked about the fact that like the 1925 phantom wasn't well received most movies like this aren't well received and i do think that that has to do with the level of expectation where people are expecting a phantom a ghost and then at the reveal that it's a person, they get disappointed. Oh, it's just a dude, one star. But also, like, <laughs> the, the quality of these, like, varies wildly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, even, I think all of them received worse criticism than any other sort of films. I know, like, out of the Universal Monsters, it wasn't well-received at all. Like, the Hammer one got rinsed because it wasn't a typical Hammer where everyone dies and there's lots of blood and stuff like that um so i think people just want phantom to be something completely different than it is they want it to be they ever want it to be a ghost or they want it to be romantic and it's neither of those right no and that's the more terrifying element of it it's terrifying that some people still think it's romantic i blame andrew lloyd Webber. although although 
uh, on the notion of Raul and Phantom being hypertoxic. While we were watching through some of these Phantom films, I was like, okay, like Phantom is a monster, Phantom is obsessive, Phantom kidnaps, Phantom murders, but as much as all of those tropes can lead to something like sexual assault, there are almost no iterations of the Phantom where sexual assault is on the table, except the Broadway, Andrew Lloyd Webber. And Argento. And Argento. I mean, I'm sure there are more than just those ones, but, like, most of the time it's off the table. Right, because that's not the point. Like, it's not uh, a physical obsession. It's not a matter of, like, wanting to make her mine physically. It's, I want her to love me over this other guy. And, uh, And most of the time it's not even that, because the Phantom, like John, you were saying is obsessed with his music. Is They usually have some other obsession. Even in I See You, uh, the character is obsessed with revenge. So they want something else out of their Christine. They manipulate their Christine into getting their art published or what have you. Right. Like, they, they love what Christine can do for them. They don't love Christine. One of the things with all these phantom films that I think makes them all exceptional is the level of spectacle in them. There's always elaborate designs, elaborate locations, elaborate traps. Even the most, like, I See You is one of the least uh, produced, I guess, uh, films on the list of films we watched. But they all take place in one location, so they elaborate on those locations. They create these passageways. And even Phantom on Broadway is wonderfully elaborate. You get the, the 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 love and care into actually producing an underground cavernous location. It's just hard to to know that you know Phantom has been a cultural icon for so many years, and so many productions have done such amazing things with it. Uh, and then Andrew Lloyd Webber, who made one of the most iconic ones, went back and was like, "I'm going to take all the love and care out of it." and churn you out a musical for money. But something like Phantom of the Paradise is all spectacle. Every They gave Phantom the backstory they gave him to create the spectacle of the costume they wanted to give him. You have Winslow going in and opposing the, the music producer Swan. So you've got this bird theme throughout the entire movie. You have uh, Death Records having the, I think, which actually ended up being co-opted as, like, the Atticus logo years later. Yeah. Right? Weird. <laughs> but you've got the Dead Crow there. You have Swan, the producer, who is really just Dorian Gray. And then you have Winslow coming in with his owl helmet, which is, like, one of the most iconic costumes in film. And when we're talking about phantoms, that's, like, that is the coolest look and everything makes sense. The I mean, silver teeth. I mean, yes. It, it. When I say everything makes sense, I mean everything with within the way that they set it up within the movie makes sense. It doesn't make sense that they would have sent him to Sing Sing and taken out all his teeth. But, <laughs> but no, it, it it's not us- Sing Sing. It's it's uh, Death Records' uh, privately owned jail. Oh, Sing Sing. That's what it was. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but so it allows it, it's us them, to have. They have total control. Yeah, and it goes back to, again, the the setup of the Phantom being a composer. It just it, it works so perfectly, especially in Phantom of the Paradise, because you've got the very on-the-nose 
uh, critique of the music industry. You know, you're going to be out there and you're trying to make it as a creative. You're trying to make it as a composer and creating some form of art. But the music industry will eat it up and then just regurgitate it back out as a pop song. And it's done so perfectly in that movie where we have songs like Winslow's Faust, which we hear at the beginning when Swan first notices him and says, that's the music that I'm opening the paradise with. It's this beautiful ballad that he plays on the piano and he sings it so deeply. Not very well, but it comes through. <laughs> the The soul that he's singing with comes through and they take it out and they turn it into a song about upholstery. They turn it into a Beach Boys song about upholstery. And then beyond that you have the uh, Beauty and the Beast ballad that he writes once he's actually the Phantom already and he knows that Phoenix is the one who's who he wants to sing his cantata and he's churning out song after song after song for Swan hoping that he'll get to hear Phoenix sing this and Swan turns around and just gives everything to Beef which is I, I wish we had a movie just about Beef I love Beef so much I loved Beef <laughs> and Beef was like Beef acted on integrity throughout most of it until Beef was threatened on both ends. Exactly. Exactly. Like, Beef said, listen, I'm not doing this. I'm getting the fuck out of here. I'm going to my mom's. And I love his line, listen, I know the difference between drug real and real real. <laughs> Which is the discussion of, is this a guy or is this a ghost? And he had that same exact argument within himself and decided, like, no, I'm getting out. And you know finally they 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 got him back in there he gets electrocuted has one of the coolest deaths during one of the best songs yeah. in the in in the movie the spectacle for that song uh weird tidbit so uh fan of the paradise came out a year before rocky horror picture show the movie but like rocky horror had been produced on the stage starting the year prior so i would love to know how much influence they had on each other because the um, reanimation chamber that Beef is lifted up on and and born from is the reanimation chamber in Rocky Horror. The Phantoms or uh, I forget, the Undead Singers are essentially the Phantoms and the um, Unconventional Conventionalists from Rocky. So like there's some nice crossover between those two. Yeah. Yeah, that's those two songs, uh, Life at Last and Someone Like You, they played in my head all the time as a kid because my dad was obsessed with this movie. So he had the cassette tape. He'd play it in the car all the time. And I knew these songs before I'd even ever even dreamed of watching the movie. So seeing that spectacle there and the way that they were able to build in the stories of Faust and Dorian Gray as well with all the different characters, it shows you how well all of these stories pair. You know, again, the crossover with the universals, dark universe could never give us. <laughs> yeah, they did it first and, and it was done far better. But, you know, you've, you've got things like that, which is phantom adjacent. And then going back to the discussion about air vents, how the fuck like how big were air vents back in the day? Why were they such a big thing where like Grady Hendrix had someone living in them? And then the air vents in phantom, phantom of the mall. Of the mall. That our entire room size. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that must just be an American thing. I was like, oh, damn. Like, they must have, like, the biggest fence in the world over there. But obviously that's not normal. Yeah. yeah like, every uh, that vent mall... system is like the fucking cube. <laughs> <laughs> that mall the commercial must be facilities got to have bigger ones. But goddamn, like, Pauly Shore is just straight up walking through some of them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's That's the, the most fascinating part is, like, that 
entire mall must feel like uh, an ice box. Like you could just hang meat in there if they're pumping out that much air that they need that much room. A man-sized, you know, like three men across <laughs> sized air vents. Fan of the Mall is a great one that takes not necessarily the artist obsession because Eric is obsessed with um, his Christine in this one, but it's commercialism. It is the fact that the mayor and the development uh, company conspired to burn down his house with him in it, raise it to the ground, and build the mall on top of it, which is why Eric gets that intimate knowledge of the mall because it's above the basement of his house where his lair is. Also, I love the shots where Eric is basically just Dr. Claw from Inspector Gadget, where he's sitting there watching the TV. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it doesn't really play on being a haunting in Phantom of the Mall, but they do take their time doing the reveal. They they put all the pieces out there for you to figure out before, uh, I forget the new love interest's name, the Raul character uh, comes into play. Yeah. I mean, it's in the title. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like we, all right, okay. <laughs> it wasn't called Phantom of the Mall, Someone's Revenge. <laughs> <laughs> it's just crazy how long we've been telling these stories for and how easy it is to overlook the weaknesses in your own home defense and not know what's going on around the world around you. You get comfortable in your safe space. You recognize it as your safe space. But all it takes is forgetting to lock the door one time, having one room that you don't check every day for someone else to move in and make it theirs. Shit, I've been getting work done at the house. Every door and window of my house has been unlocked for like three months now. So there, it's not a matter of like if it's a matter of who is living in my walls right now <laughs> oh you're safe it's me i uh, as a courtesy i live in all of your walls and i do protect all of you <laughs> oh thanks buddy <laughs> it's just a matter of you know my on and off days because sometimes i'm at yours sometimes I'm at john sometimes I'm at anna's wait if you- so like if i'm not there you're on your own if you were hiding <laughs> in my house and didn't see me on purpose for like a year when you're in my walls i would kill you <laughs> All right, the pandemic was a little different, a little more difficult. I wasn't doing my most uh, exceptional wall crawling. <laughs> Remember, Scared for Your Life is opening uh, for submissions April 1st. You can check us out at filmfreeway.com slash scared for your L-I-I-F-E because we are a part of the Long Island International Film Expo. Tell your friends, submit your films, go out and make a film. Uh, we're open for submissions starting April 1st at filmfreeway.com slash scared for your L-I-I-F-E. So now that we're all sufficiently freaked out in our own homes, do you guys want your fear of the day? Please. Sure. Release us. Go for it. Your fear of the day is a thasagoraphobia. Fear of phantoms. No. <laughs> I would have been mad if that was it. The fear of someone being in your home? Nope. Oh, God. It's got agoraphobia in it. Yeah. Is it the that's, fear? Yeah, that's where it's the tricky one. Oh, boy. Uh, The fear of, like, falling into, like, somewhere you can't get out of. Nope. Shit. I'm out. Is it the fear of secret passages in your house? Nope. Oh, never mind. It's uh, it's a lot more internalized idea of home. It is the idea of forgetting or being forgotten. Oh, that's sad. Oh, I can't. That's just being a Pisces. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that uh, fucking broke me, man. Damn. Not Bing Bong. Oh, no, no, oh, Bing, Bing Bong. bong. <laughs> Don't you do this. 
<laughs> is inside a on. phantom film <laughs> no, but go away go we're away. a horror podcast that mentions at least two disney films per episode and always scooby-doo you guys want to do recommendations yeah i'll go all right well for first of all uh i didn't want to recommend this one i actually want to dissuade people from watching it but hider in the house which is like <laughs> one of the uh living in the walls movies but the only scary part about it is that Gary Busey is the guy that lives in the walls and it's oh my the God. fucking <laughs> scariest thing I can imagine. Oh, yikes. Oh, that just made, <laughs> that just gave me goosebumps even thinking of the concept. I do not like that. He's and, in your man-sized air vents whispering uh, Buseyisms to you while you sleep. <laughs> he was being interviewed about the movie uh, where he got his inspiration from and he was like, this is a, a NAR film that's uh, no acting required because I, I'm already the character. And I was like, holy fuck. <laughs> oh, Gary Busey. Uh, but my actual recommendation is Castle Freak or Castle Freak and the 2020 remake of the same name. <laughs> I tried to watch Castle Freak, but maybe it's because I tried to watch the Joe Bob uh, episode and I just wasn't feeling it. Oh, really? I... I might not be as crazy about Joe Bob as I thought. Yeah, I was gonna say if Joe Bob told me to watch something about, like, nah, you're alright. But I'm, I'm not, I'm not a fan. He's he definitely brought this like back into the um the the mainstream again, as as much as you can call Joe Bob's fucking mainstream. <laughs> but I, it's a a full moon entertainment movie, and they they did um Puppet Master. Like, so yeah, does it take place at the same castle? Did I not pick that up? That's the one. It's the it's, same castle? It's it's the one from Pit and the Pendulum. Oh, okay, okay. Because I know uh, that, like, one of the heads of Full Moon lives at the castle that Puppet Masters filmed at. Not the, but a castle. And, like, the whole <laughs> reason he wanted to make this movie um, is that uh, the director, Stuart Gordon, was in a meeting and he saw a, a poster that was called Castle... F- that said Castle Freak. And there was, like, a freak... And he was being whipped by a woman and he asked about it and uh, the guy he was talking to was like, I don't know, that's a castle and that's a freak. You can make it into a movie if you want. And he was like, yeah, I'll do that. (laughs) Um, But it's like a it's full of like Lovecraft references and it's not a a Lovecraft movie, but it's got a little bit of the outsider influence in there. Stuart Gordon uh, will make every single one of his films Lovecraft themed, no matter what yep. he does. It doesn't have Even to do he, anything. With yeah, it. he's not doing it on purpose. It's just sort of fucking happening. But like Jeffrey Combs is in it, who was in Reanimator. And, well, he was the Reanimator. And the 2020 remake of this ends with the, the main character meeting with someone he refers to as West while a glowing green vial of the reanimator fluid is on there. So, like, they're getting ready to open this fucking up. <laughs> Wild. I should have stuck around. Yeah. yeah Stuart and- Gordon is one of the most underrated directors ever. But, all- yeah, there is a formula. It'll always be Lovecraft theme. It'll always have Jeffrey Coombs in it. I don't yeah, I, I can't think of a Stuart Gordon film with those two things not in them. <laughs> the remake is, like, very much more so a Lovecraft movie where it's got the, the dumb witch horror like almost as the plot and both of these movies end in sort of like a horny way where truly booty kills the beast and it's amazing (laughs) (laughs) so my recommendation for this episode is a spanish language film it's called mientras duermes and that translates roughly to while you sleep 
This is a bummer of a movie, but it's really good. I watched this actually as like a double feature with another Spanish language film called um, Under My Skin. And that's just th- this was a rough afternoon. But basically, it, <laughs> it does take the concepts of someone living in your walls as well as kind of a home invasion storyline. It has to do with a superintendent from a building who literally just wants to make his tenants lives miserable. He hates that everyone is happy. He wants to just see them suffer. So he starts doing like the smallest little things to torture people. And he has a new tenant in the building and he just kind of zeroes in on her, starts going into her apartment at night and like putting things in her ointment to or like her lotion to give her rashes. When the rash starts to clear up, he puts cockroaches in her air vents. So like these little things like that. And throughout the entire movie, you just so badly want to see him get his comeuppance. And they do have a Raoul-type character in this as well. So it does kind of tie into the the Phantom story. Towards the end, they did lose me. There is aspects of, like, a sexual assault that goes on. You just, you so badly want to see this guy crushed by the end of the movie. Again, prepare yourself if you do decide to watch it. But it does (laughs) go there. The cinematography is beautiful. It's very well directed, very well acted. Those aspects towards the end of the film kind of take me out of it but for the most part this is a really good watch very like it will make your skin crawl and thankfully it doesn't lean into those other aspects as much it is more so of the like I'm gonna just do these tiny little things that are gonna annoy you and that are just gonna make your life a living hell so yeah check out that that movie uh Mientras Duermes uh so I want to recommend Teardrop which is on Tubi right now this is a film that checks some of my niche boxes and like if you got the same niches as I do enjoy if you don't give it a watch anyway Uh, it is an American frontier ghost story the reason I feel like it ties into the episode is that there is a little bit of this is it a ghost is it a guy going on at the end of uh, the movie so there's some stuff leading up to it that does make you question who's who's doing what is it a ghost and a guy or is like somebody not who they appear to be on this trip yeah it's called teardrop it's on tubi give it a watch my recommendation doesn't completely tie into the episode but i i watched it and i was just like i need to talk about this but even a second um so my recommendation is the stylist which came out in 2020 um it's it's beautiful and it's actually one way it kind of ties into the episode is that it did what the phantom was not able to do in any instance which is you are constantly going in and out of sympathizing with the killer and it really hits some like moral gray areas where you're like oh i want her to like i don't want her to get caught and i want her to be happy and like oh i love her but she's freaking killing people so that it really screws with your morals um all the acting is just brilliant it's basically about this hairstylist who has this almost compulsion and you can tell that she kind of doesn't want to do it but she almost feels like she has to where she collects people's hair but in the way that she she scalps them completely in order to 
to take their hair and she sort of wears them as wigs and goes into the different characters that they were in order to like overcome her own self-esteem issues and obviously deteriorating mental health throughout the film um but it's everyone in the film is just so believable to the point where you're just sort of screaming internally the whole way through like no don't do it like oh let her go and uh, yeah it's a lot um but it's it's super good and it's female directed i am not going to be able to pronounce this i've literally stared at it a million times trying to figure out how to pronounce it but i can't um but the director's called jill Giverjazayan which I just completely butchered but that's literally my best attempt yet um (laughs) and the main actress is Najara Townsend and she is just perfection um and the director of the film is actually a hairstylist that makes it all the cooler (laughs) so yeah definitely check that out it also has one of the most satisfyingly gothic endings oh god yeah not gonna ruin it but yeah um, I definitely recommend that, and I feel like it's 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 got a little something for everyone horror wise. I'm glad that there were a couple mentions of Beauty and the Beast today, and I'm glad that we got on the topic of Scooby Doo today because two episodes I would love to do in the future are fairy tales and horror, and obviously this lineage of Scooby Doo and horror. Like we've already established, Phantom inspired Scooby Doo, inspired Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I would love to go down that rabbit hole. But thanks for tuning into the Hauntsville Cryptcast. I'm Anthony. I'm Doza. I'm Anna. And I'm John. Happy hauntings. And I'm in your walls, and we're low on milk. <laughs> and we'll see you in hell. Mm-hmm.